Welcome to the Cover Two Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover Two Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover Two Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover Two podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. In 2016, Ohio had the second highest death rate due to drug overdoses. West Virginia was first, with 52 per 100,000, followed by Ohio with 39.1 per 100,000 people. There are 88 counties in Ohio, each of them working to address the opioid epidemic according to the unique needs of their communities. But one stands out for creating a comprehensive program that's saving lives in their county and making a difference in the opioid epidemic. And that's here in Montgomery County, led by the Montgomery County Alcohol and Drug Addiction and Mental Health Services and the Public Health Department of Dayton and Montgomery County. They developed the Community Overdose Action Team, better known as COAT, in the fall of 2016 to address the opioid and heroin epidemic in their communities. Here today to talk about COAT, and how it came about, and what it means to the community is Barbara Marsh, the assistant to the health commissioner at the Public Health and Dayton. And here also joining me is Jody Long. Jody is the director of behavioral health treatment and supportive services for the Montgomery County Alcohol and Drug and Mental Health Services. Tell us a little bit about how the Community Overdose Action Team, today known as COAT, came about. Well, in September 2016, um, our Montgomery County Commissioners convened a countywide forum to address um, the, the uh, opioid crisis, um, and they requested community stakeholders to work together to address the epidemic or the crisis. Um, Public Health Aid in Montgomery County and the Montgomery County Alcohol Drug Addiction Mental Health Services, we have really taken the lead in working together to address the community-wide efforts. So under the leadership, um, community partners have come together and we formed the Community Overdose Action Team. Um, the Community Overdose Action Team, or the COAT, operates under a collective impact model, and we also operate under a national incident management system framework, which is the same structure um, that provides consistent template for partners to work together to respond to local, state, and federal emergencies. So all first responders are trained under, under the national incident management system model. The National Incident Management System, NIMS, 
provides a common nationwide approach to enable the whole community to work together to manage all threats and hazards. I have been a social worker for over 25 years and I'm dual licensed as an addictions counselor as well. And we have seen a, um, with opiates, it's just different. People are more likely to die before they're likely to seek treatment. Uh, Where with other substances, there was a bigger gap between the time a person started using and to the point that they maybe die of their addiction. Mm And so with opiates, that there's, the window is so small to get people into treatment that it was just devastating to the communities. Yeah. And it didn't give people an opportunity to realize that what they were doing was harmful to their bodies, was harmful to their brains. They would die before they could come to treatment. Boy, isn't that the truth? This mm-hmm. is The window of opportunity is just so small, so small in this. Mm-hmm. And you see that every day in your line of work. So one of the things that impressed me in preparing for this podcast is how many people you brought to the table and you got to collaborate mm-hmm. in putting together this program. Um, you know, it, it, I looked up a little stat. Um, the Wharton School of Business points that it's uh, five to six people is the ideal number in a group that has to accomplish a significant amount of work. Yet you've pulled together 60 partners to do this. How did you do that? So in, in the county, we all have a stake Um, The opiate epidemic hit everyone, from business leaders to faith communities uh, to treatment providers to criminal justice systems. Literally everybody has been impacted in some way, even retail providers where we found people going into bathrooms and overdosing. And so every sector of the community had a vested interest in coming together because they saw what it was costing the community as a whole. And so using the collective impact model, saying that everybody had a place at the table, including those in recovery, and to create a solution is how we brought everyone together to begin with. The collective impact model provides a framework for stakeholders to collaborate to tackle deeply entrenched and complex social problems. The collective impact model states that if you all come together under a common framework, working under a common goal, that you're more likely to make change in a community system and that you should never build a response to a a population health issue without the people that's most impacted by it. And so in this case, it's the people that are using substances, people that are addicted, and people who are recovering from their addiction. Because when you bring everyone to the table, you are more likely to create a a process and and services that will most impact the individuals that it's intended for. So the work of the Community Overdose Action Team is to stabilize the number of people dying from drug overdoses and reduce the number of fatal overdoses. In addition, it'll identify what services are being offered, look for any existing gaps in services, and explore potential new and expanded ways to combat the drug overdose problem. So can you break that down a little bit for us and and kind of walk us through that, what, what that means, your definition of that? So what that looks like is we have to create responses that look at prevention. How do we Uh, ensure people who are not using substances don't start. Um, Then how do we address people who might be exposed to substances? In this case, might be people that are prescribed um, legally an opiate for pain management. How do we ensure that uh, they use that prescription appropriately and when they're finished with it, they're not in a place where they're addicted to it? And how do we keep that safe? And then on the other end of it is what do we do for the individuals? What services can we put in place for individuals who are using a substance, either illegal or legal, who have become addicted to it, how do we provide them treatment? And equally important to that is what supportive services do we wrap around them? What do they need more, you know, on equal par to treatment? 
They need access to stable housing and safe housing, access to peers who are also in recovery themselves and can be supportive. Uh, they need access to employment and employers who are willing to um, create drug-free workplaces that allow for second chances so people don't lose their employment because they're faced with a chronic brain disease, but people who can be offered treatment and retain their employment because retaining employment helps with treatment outcomes. And so really looking at it from prevention, intervention, and treatment and building um, models in the community around those three pieces is what makes it successful. So Barbara, can you help begin to walk us through those models in the community and the specifics of that? Sure. Um, well, with you know, we what we did when we established the community everyday action team, we based our strategies on um, national and state strategies. So we really looked at what other communities were doing that was working, and we um, developed under our branches of the community overdose action team. We developed eight branches. The eight branches of the community overdose action team plan are illegal opioid supply control, education and information harm reduction, collateral response, prevention, prescription opioids, treatment and recovery, and criminal justice. Um, under those eight branches includes prevention, um, which would be increasing substance abuse before it starts. Um, so making our substance abuse efforts before they start. So mm -hmm. making sure that we're, um, you know, that we're um, making sure that we're intervening or are intervening with individuals before they actually begin using. So how do you, can you give us an example of, of how you do that, um, Jody? So what happens so many times? So many times they get injured, they go to the doctor, and they get prescribed, and in many cases overprescribed. Mm -hmm. and, and all they do is follow the doctor's orders, and bam, they're hooked. So in prevention, it's, a, it's very much based in education, educating members in the community about the risk of opiates, mm -hmm. and what, and to be aware, and to ask questions, and be informed um, consumers of our medications to ask questions mm -hmm. to doctors, is this an opiate? What are the risks for it? Mm -hmm. And so one specific thing we did, our prevention branch um, created information that was sent out to our uh, coaches in high schools to give information to their parents. So when we have a young person that's injured, the coaches and the athletic directors have access to information that they can hand to a parent and say, your child was injured in, in their high school sport mm -hmm. and they may need treatment for this. But be aware that they may be prescribed opiates and some of the risk factors for opiates. Along the same lines is giving people information about what are alternatives to opiates uh, when treating pain. As part of the prevention plan, they created special handouts for parents with children who participated in sports, outlining the risks of opioids and the alternatives available for pain management. They also began including opioid education inserts in water and electric bills sent out to the community. And so things like letting, um, in one of our efforts, we attached uh, one-pagers inside people's water and electric bills that said, if you are working, if you're dealing with pain, here are some alternatives. You can consider meditation. Have you considered yoga? Have you considered physical therapy? And helping people understand that there are other ways to pain management other than medications. Yeah. And those are just a couple of the prevention um, initiatives here locally. Our faith communities have been really um, instrumental in this. They very much want to be involved in prevention efforts. Mm -hmm. And um, we have several church communities now who are being trained in uh, prevention messages that can be incorporated into Sunday sermons and into Sunday school classes. Um, and that's another creative way to reach people that might not necessarily come 
in contact with treatment or supportive services in our community. Yeah, the information that. that is included in the electric bill is based on um, Generation X uh, program, which is a prevention program that creates educational materials, which is already identified as an evidence-based practice by the federal government. Oh, and so um, okay. at the federal government, there's a, a department called Substance Abuse Mental Health uh, Service Administration, SAMHSA for short, mm-hmm. and they maintain a national registry for right. prevention initiatives. Right. So everything we've built is built on what we already know to be based in science. And yeah. so the electric bill inserts based in good science. Sure. Um, what we hand out to the coaches are already based in programs Perfect. and information. Okay. What branch are we going to hit next? Um, well, we can uh, hit treatment and recovery next. Um, our treatment and recovery branch it expands access to treatment and community supports. Um, so we've, we've expanded um, several programs in the community under the treatment and recovery branch to, to expand for or expand access um, as well as capacity. So a couple of things that we did here locally, um, we did not have a level of care known as ambulatory detox or outpatient detox, where mm-hmm. you can live in your home, still go to work, yeah. and still be detoxed from opiates. Yeah. And we had an agency that came forward that was interested in providing that service. And um, the Adams Board, where I work, was able to fund that program to be able to get it up and started. And it now is available to the community. So 24-7, you can walk in uh, to Samaritan Behavioral Health Incorporated and be started on a medication protocol that will help you detox from opiates. And at the end of 10 days, um, you will be able to receive a Vivitrol injection. And then during that 10 days, um, it's being discussed where else are you going to get treatment. And they're handed off or transitioned to... um, outpatient providers, whether the person needs intensive outpatient, regular outpatient, and for some individuals it is residential care, but it provides that immediate first step, what do I do, and then helps assess where the person is the level of care that they need ongoing. Criminal justice. Criminal justice, um, they're looking at expanding access to and utilization of treatment options for those that are involved in the criminal justice system. Drug court. Um, drug court is certainly one of those options. We are very fortunate that we have both municipal and common pleas drug courts that operate here in Montgomery County. Mm-hmm. Um, our juvenile court stepped up and developed a family dependency uh, court, mm-hmm. uh, which really addresses um, when parents are using and are at risk of losing custody of their children. And um, individuals can, families can choose to participate in family dependency court. And what it does is it coordinates what happens between children's services and the court system but really allows families to stay intact while they're receiving treatment, and, and that is a unique opportunity. Additionally, in the criminal justice branch, uh, we worked with our, our jail and our community-based correctional facility uh, to ensure that individuals, inmates, who, uh, when they're being discharged, have access to Narcan. We know one of the biggest risk periods for overdoses within the first couple of days of discharge uh, from a jail or from a correction facility. Mm -hmm. And so now we're able to use our Project Dawn program that goes in and trains Mm -hmm. inmates uh, how to use Narcan. And they're equipped with Narcan. It's kept in their personal property until they're discharged. And then when they're discharged, they have access to Narcan when they go out into the community. Well, part of that is if they are using themselves to make sure family and friends have access to Narcan. But we've Mm -hmm. personally had an inmate who was discharged and used her Narcan dose to save a friend she happened to come across who had overdosed. That gave opportunity for both people to seek treatment, stay involved yeah. in treatment. Yeah. And those are some of those unique ways we've been able to impact the criminal justice system. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the backbone. What's the purpose of the backbone? So in a collective impact model, you build a mm-hmm. backbone structure of your key community sectors that need to be at the table to oversee the rest of the process. 
And so if you think about our eight branches, our mm -hmm. eight branches report back up to the backbone. And we, the backbone, also give information down to the eight branches about the direction that we need to head, where, what are the issues we need to be addressing, what data is needed, what fiscal resources are needed, what people resources are needed. And so our backbone um, incorporates public health and Atomus. We are the mm -hmm. key leads for the backbone. But additionally, then, we have law enforcement at the table, our hospital association. What's our, GDAH? That is our Greater Dayton Area Hospital, hospital? Association okay. Good. Um, okay. that coordinates efforts amongst all three hospitals. Okay. Um, our court systems um, mm. and, and our fire EMS and then mm -hmm. our emergency management system. And so we are, um, for lack of a better word, kind of the managers of the coach process for mm -hmm. the county and to oversee to make sure are there resources that a branch needs that's different than what they needed last week. Um, are we seeing something? Is data telling us that something else is going on that we may need to pass out to a branch so they can come up with an appropriate response? And then our job for the backbone, the additionally, is to report back out to our larger steering committee, um, which are um, the key administrators of our key systems. And so your CEOs of your, of your businesses, your CEOs of your hospitals, other key administrators want to know what's happening as well. Okay. So you mentioned data. How important is data sharing as part of this? And what's the role, really, that data plays? You know, um, that's another positive that's kind of come out of this yes. nationally. And, well, in, in different communities. Um, we, we did one podcast on big data in Indiana, in fact. Um, but it's breaking the data out. You've got all this data that's available, but it's yes. all in silos. So it's yes. breaking, you know, and, and pulling it all together and being able to do and, and some yes. type of analysis on it. So can you speak to data and the role that it plays here with code? Correct. Yes. Um, with the data unit, we actually created a data unit as part of the uh, Community Overdose Action Team. The data unit involves um, members of our, well, it's co-led by um, um, a person at um, Montgomery County Alcohol Drug and um, Mental Health Services, as well as um, Public Health Aid Montgomery County, um, they create a six-month data report that is sent out to the um, community, as well as a yearly data report to the community. Um, but it's really bringing all the county and all the all the county data that we do have available and sharing that data. So, so you've got it from your coroner's office. Correct. You've got it from criminal justice. You've yes. got it from any state data from the... Yes, we receive data from the Ohio Department of Health. Okay. And then um, we also um, receive some data from hospitals. Wow. Yeah. Then on the other side of it, um, Atomus, because we fund treatment services, we have access to treatment records. Not that we can share those publicly. Those are protected with confidentiality uh, due to HIPAA. But we can take the public reports that public health receives mm -hmm. and do data analysis on it in terms of who's seeking treatment and provide aggregate information back out to the community. We actually have improved that process here locally. We have a, a, a great relationship with our Montgomery County Coroner's Office. They send us information on the desk weekly. Um, we post those on our website. And those, those are actually posted every Friday and so there is a, there's a weekly update on the number of deaths that we have in our community. Um, those are suspected deaths because they're not um, confirmed until after the toxicology screens are completed, which takes a bit longer, but we at least have an idea and we have a number weekly from our coroner's office. 
We've just walked through the over, the, kind of an overview, if you will, of the community overdose action uh, team here and, and your overall plan. What haven't we talked about there? Have we pretty much covered it from a high level? We pretty much covered it from a high level. I think the one thing that I would add is that under the, because we're operating under an emergency preparedness model or the National Incident Management System framework, um, we are on 30-day action plans because we, we elevated this to an emergency issue in our county. And because we did that, each of these branches are required to um, create 30-day emergency action plans that are then approved by the backbone support every 30 days. So this is a, your county commissioner, your county executive de declared this a county emergency, state of emergency? No, we didn't no? declare it a county emergency, but okay. what we did was we treated it as an important issue and an emergency in our county. Okay, so, so you, the protocol elevated. is the same, yes. but you just didn't do that declaration. No, we didn't do a declaration, but the protocol is the same as if we would if we would have um, issued an emergency in our county. So every 30 days you're redoing the plan. Correct, we're and, redoing the plan. And it's out there for other communities to look at. Yes, it's on our website mm -hmm. at www.phdmc.org. And if you go under the Community Overdose Action Team, every emergency action plan or in every incident action plan is, is located there. And the reality is, is many of the organizations and the individuals participating in the COAT were already doing great local efforts here in the community. What the COAT brought together was it was really, we're all going to work together now towards a common goal. So instead of having 10 agencies all doing their own thing, we have 10 agencies with a common goal doing their piece, but they see how it fits in the bigger picture. And so it's really a lot of not new resources, but aligning what we have for maximum impact to, to, to change the community. So how long did it take to put this together? And what was the cost? We started, we actually started in the spring and we had it up in, we had it operational by September 2016. So we started in the spring of 2016 and by the, by the fall of 2016, we went through collective impact training as a group. And then by September of 2016, we had it up and running. And so as a group, um, how many people went through that? Are we talking about all 60 uh, you know, stakeholders? Oh, no, no, probably closer to a couple 200, hundred. Yeah. 200 people yeah. through this training. How long was the training? It was a one-day training. One-day training, mm -hmm. okay. Oh. And then people self-selected the branches that they would want to serve on based on what initial, mm -hmm. what efforts they were already doing in the community. Mm -hmm. So they self-selected out into mm -hmm. the branches. And so in terms of additional costs, there was no additional dollars for the coat in and of itself. You got the um, it's it's just yeah. a portion of in-kind support from various entities mm -hmm. of their staff's time and talents mm -hmm. uh, to come together and to work together. Mm -hmm. So... What advice would you have for other communities that want to do this? I think for other communities um, here, particularly in Ohio, is the partnership between public health and an Adamus board is key um, because we both have a mission to serve the residents and to improve population health. And so I think that is, is a key collaborator in terms of any community moving forward using an incident management system. Adamus is not, incident management systems aren't something that Adamus does routinely. Um, we are more about prevention, treatment, and support services, but public health uses incident management systems for all kinds of things that Barb can speak to. Yes. Yeah, we use it for any public health emergency. So if there is a communicable disease outbreak in the community, we set up an incident ma management model to respond to any type of disease outbreak. 
Um, we also use the incident management model for any disaster in, in the community, and we are part of that emergency response um, in the community along with our fire EMS law enforcement or any other um, first responders. So you're taking a successful model and applying it to the opioid Correct. epidemic here in mm -hmm. your community, yes. and it's something that you're well-versed in. So it's a skill set that you and um, your whole team has. Yes. Yeah, yeah. and actually our um, operations section of, our, of the uh, code is led by our emergency preparedness coordinator. So he brings the set of skills, knowledge, skills, and abilities to lead us through the incident management process. An innovative portion of the plan called for pulling together various recovery groups and having them collaborate, and that worked out well. They signed a memorandum of understanding and began cross-promoting one another's events. Well, we've seen successes um, in a couple of different ways, the things that come to mind. Um, one of the initial um, gaps identified by the Treatment and Services Branch was recovery centers or recovery clubs, uh, peer-run recovery clubs. And so initially we thought we were going to have to fund and support the development of brand new clubs. And as people in recovery came to the table and participated in our branch, what we found out is we already had um, four uh, very traditional 12-stop clubs operating in the community who wanted to do more and wanted to be part of the COPE process. And then we had a, a, a newer peer-operated support system for family and friends um, who wanted to be part of the process. And so instead of having to create five new centers, we brought the five centers together, and they now have created a memorandum of understanding between the five of them that they want to advertise their services together. They want to refer back and forth to each other. So if someone has a... a um, a recovery event on Christmas and somebody else has one on New Year's that they'll send referrals back and forth between their clubs um, because maybe they don't have the resources to all have a Christmas activity. And, and so that's been a very positive in, in, as we move forward. We have a number of businesses that have stepped up and said we want drug-free workplace policies that support second chances. Um, when your business community comes together and say this is impacting us being able to retain employees, what can we do different? That is a huge success and a benefit to our communities long term. Um, our faith-based faith -based communities agreeing to share prevention messages inside uh, their traditional messaging inside their church is um, success stories. There's a, probably hundreds of individual personal success stories that we can tell you. Um, the one that comes to mind is a young man who had been in jail, who had experienced a Narcan uh, a save by law enforcement and who came out and is in recovery himself now who is now working on becoming a certified peer recovery specialist he operates a private nonprofit who owns recovery housing and he is helping other people find their journey to recovery that's a success story that is mm -hmm. no doubt and there are several success stories I mean we we um, we were very intentional as part of the collective impact model. Barbara, same question. You know, it's it's really worked. The the mm -hmm. incident uh, national incident management system, as well as the collective impact models, have worked extremely well for our community. Um, we are always willing to share information um, to, with other communities, providing that information to them. Um, you know, we hope that this model it does um, it can be replicated for other issues, and we have actually um, we've we've because we also have um, concerns about infant mortality in our community, and we have replicated this model now for um, our infant mortality task force. So it can be replicated. It can be used for other other issues other than the opioid epidemic, 
And, um, you know, we hope that um, whatever, whatever we can provide, um, it, you know, it can help other communities. We've been introduced today to the Community Overdose Action Team, better known as COAT. It was founded in the fall of 2016 to address the opioid and heroin epidemic in the communities in Montgomery County and Dayton. So we've been talking with Barbara Marsh, who is the assistant to the health commissioner at Public Health, and Jody Long, the director of behavioral health treatment and support services for the Montgomery County Alcohol and Drug and Mental Health Services. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.